evidence and answers. Jesus met with his disciples for one final meal known as the Last Supper. This occurred on the eve of the Passover, one of the most important Jewish festivals that commemorates their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. On this night, Jesus gave new meaning to the Passover meal. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat and his guest, John Blassingame, will discuss the Jewish Passover and the new meaning Christ gave to this occasion. Here with part one is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, before his arrest and trial, Jesus shared one final meal with his disciples, an event we know as the Last Supper. Now, the Last Supper coincided with the Jewish Passover meal, which Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. And as many of you may know, the Passover is one of the most important Jewish festivals. And it was on this night Jesus gave new meaning to the Passover. So to tell us about the significance of the Last Supper and its connection with the Passover, a student of mine at Pacific Rim University, John Blassingame. John is from Texas, a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. He received a bachelor's in arts in philosophy and serves in the United States Air Force. And he's also working on his Master of Arts in Christian Studies from the Pacific Rim University. So, John, welcome to Evidence and Answers for the first time. Yes, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, John, since this is your first time here on this show, I'm sure we'll have you back again in future dates. But tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you. Where are you from? And tell us just a little bit about your upbringing there in Texas. Okay, yeah, so I'm from the North Texas area. I was born in Plano, went to Frisco schools for the majority of my childhood, graduated from Liberty High School out in Frisco, Texas. And, you know, relating to the context of where we are and what we're talking about today, I think it's probably important to share a little bit about my background in the Christian faith. I was born and raised in a Christian household. My parents were role models for me when it comes to what it means to live out faith. They schooled me and educated me in Christian doctrine, uh, and I'm very thankful for that. However, I think my story probably relates pretty well to the stories of all, maybe a lot of teenagers who grew up in Christian households, and that my faith was something I believed more or less because it was taught to me, not because I had made the decision to believe it. And it was that more or less the case until um, sometime in college, and sometime in college, a number of things happened uh, that made me really take seriously the claims that are proposed in the Bible and that Christian teachers also affirm. And in taking seriously those claims, I would say that I began to live out my faith to a greater degree in college. That's one of the reasons that has uh, brought me here today is, well, I wouldn't have met you apart from Pacific Rim Christian University, and I probably wouldn't have been at Pac Rim if I hadn't taken seriously my faith back at the Air Force Academy. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I'm sure there's a lot of Christian parents that are listening here that are raising their kids in the ways of the Lord. Right. Some of them, their children have walked away from the Lord. Some of them, not really serious about their faith. Uh, tell us uh, what was going on and what caused you to maybe doubt or not take your faith so seriously. 
And what was it, you know, that really caused you to really think about your faith and make you serious about being a disciple of Christ? Yeah. So I think what I would say when it comes to growing up, I was, faith had become something that was so normalized in my life. It was so natural. It was so routine. But at the same time, it was so routine in the fact that I thought I could live it out or I thought I could just believe it intellectually without actually applying it in any meaningful way in the way that I walked, I would say. That resulted in me looking essentially the same as a lot of people that I went to school with. My life really didn't look that much different than their life, except for the fact that, you know, maybe I didn't drink or maybe I didn't curse. Maybe I went to church on Sundays, more or less because my parents told me to do so. Not that I had come to the conclusion that this is what I ought to do because it pleases God and not because I said that that was the desire of my life was to please God. I think one of the things that contributed to my living and believing a less than vibrant faith in that time of my life was probably the desire to be well-liked and popular in school. I think it's something a lot of people struggle with, but that was the way in which I had received validation. And that's the way that I thought I could develop confidence was just through that. I didn't realize that there was validation to be found in something else. I, didn't, I, didn't, I guess I didn't realize that you could find validation. You could find a solid identity in the Christian faith. So in college, that story of identity kept playing a big role in my life. Freshman year, it played a dictatorial role in what I spent my time on and sophomore year as well. So I joined a team at the academy more or less because I thought that being on this team would make me look good in the eyes of others. And that's what I cared about. It wasn't that I, I didn't care about deeper truths. I didn't care about living in accordance with, I guess, with God's will. I cared about how I was perceived and how I could derive satisfaction from that. And I was challenged by that by a professor at the Air Force Academy. He challenged me in such a way that struck at the heart of my identity. I guess he challenged me to quit this team that I was on, which had become such a central aspect of my identity. And that bothered me, but ultimately it led to me digging into my faith, me digging into what I believe, why I believe it. And, you know, just looking back on the last few years, I would say that it ultimately led to things in my life changing not necessarily because I put in the moral effort to change them, but because I think we could say that God was working in and through those circumstances. Yes, you know, I think you bring up a point, as I tell all parents, when children in Christian homes are growing up, their faith is really their parents' faith. Right. But there comes a point where they're going to start questioning, and that is good. Mm -hmm. I say that is good, but the parents, the youth pastor, those around them, better be ready to answer some deep and very difficult right, questions right. because they're going to take off that jacket or that coat of faith that their parents gave them. Mm -hmm. And the next time, the next coat that they put on is going to be theirs. And that's a good thing if they do embrace faith in Jesus Christ. But there comes a time where they take off that coat and they're really going to challenge. And, and to me, that's a healthy part where they're going to really challenge and think and say, do I really believe this? Is it really right. true? And I right. think that seems to be a process that you went through. Yeah, that is a process that I went through. And even before I had this major life change at the academy, right when I got to the academy, before I had joined this team, before I had gone through the struggle of faith, I do notice evidences and traces 
of the way that my parents had brought me up in the ways of the Lord, I noticed traces and evidences of that in the habits that I had developed at the academy. So th I think there's a verse in Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he does not depart from that. And I would say that I think I saw this confirmed in my life as I went through basic training at the academy. I think in the first few days of basic training, I began to experience this like sense of homelessness that I had never felt before, a sense of homesickness that I'd never felt before, and it was very strong. And in feeling this, one of the things I did was I turned to the Bible. I took a Bible from the Air Force Academy Chapel, and I would just read it at night. Like, I guess like I would say, I'd never read it before. I never read it like I could find comfort in it. But my parents had taught me, and they had put me in the environment growing up that had been conducive to developing this kind of habit. They had trained me in the way that I should go. It's interesting that when I was old, when I left home and when I had to live on my own, more or less, this is what I resorted back to. I did not depart from it. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful for the way that they raised me like that. Yeah, and so parents who are raising teens and wondering is the example that we are trying to set, the values, the biblical values that we are trying to instill in our children is it really worth it? Is it making an impact? And I think what you're saying is, is yes, it does. Right. But sometimes you've got to take that child out of a familiar environment right. for them to realize the importance of it, especially in finding their way in life when their parents and the familiar settings aren't there anymore. Right. That, that's what you went through, right? Yes. I would also say that as an encouragement for the parents who do feel like you know you are trying to lead your children in the way that they should go and teaching them the, this Christian doctrine or surrounding them with Christianity and things of the Lord, you might not see results in the immediate. You might not see them maybe for years down the line. And I'm sure my parents felt that way with me at times. I'm sure they were frustrated as though, you know, maybe they had spent time in prayer for me, but they didn't see much impact in my life. Or maybe they had invested X amount of time in teaching me God's word and they didn't see it result in fruit in my life. But it's amazing, you know, just how one trigger can spring all that fruit, which I would say that, you know, more or less one trigger in my life, moving away from home, being put into a situation in which I'm supposed to, or I w in which I feel like I need to turn back to God and find my home in Him. It's due to what my parents had given me when I was growing up. So I just encourage parents out there, you know, if you do feel like you're not seeing fruit in your children, keep doing it. Don't give up because you never know what it could result in down the line. Yes, that's great words of encouragement to parents out there. Now, John, tell us a little bit, why did you go into philosophy there at the Air Force Academy? Originally, you started in a different major, but you ended up in this one. And yes. it's kind of an interesting story. Tell us about it. Yes, so I went to the Air Force Academy originally wanting to become a doctor. So I was a biochemistry major for about my first two years there. Toward the end of my second year at the Air Force Academy, I had this life-altering encounter with this professor. Uh, and it really changed my life. It really changed my outlook on the future. I kind of realized and admitted to myself that I didn't want to become a doctor one day. I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And that led me to become a legal studies major, so a law major. I was taking a law class at the time, and I thought it was interesting, and I was just like, you know what, I want to study something that I find interesting. So I became a legal studies major, entered into this research-heavy legal studies class, 
sort of began thinking, as I saw another friend who was studying philosophy, that this legal studies thing wasn't for me. And I, was, I guess I was a little jealous of my friend who was studying philosophy and what he got to learn in class. And just the interest of the ideas, they intrigued me. And so I switched to philosophy after uh, that fall semester of my junior year at the Air Force Academy. Now, why did I stick with philosophy? Well, I guess I didn't want to change majors for a third time. Um, <laughs> if I could do it again, I might do humanities. Not because philosophy is not intriguing to me, but because I really like the way that philosophy interacts with other elements of academics. So I like the way that philosophy interacts with history. I have a lot of interest in the history of philosophy and how those ideas actually affected events surrounding them. So I, I'm really interested in maybe how Jean-Jacques Rousseau's political theory or his philosophy influenced events that were surrounding his time period. So how did they influence the French Revolution? How did other philosophers' ideas influence historical events? So I'm interested in the interplay between history and philosophy and also between literature and philosophy and history. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot to be learned about Shakespeare and how philosophy impacted him, how he impacted philosophy in turn, and maybe how historical events were influencing both of them at the same time. So going back, if I could do it, I might do humanities, but I did like discussing certain ideas in philosophy. So that's a little intro to who is John Blassingame. Well, we're talking here about Christ and the Passover, right. and the reason I had you talk about that is I thought you did an outstanding job in a presentation there in class. So I was wondering if you could share it here with our audience. Now, how'd you become interested in this topic of Christ and the Passover and the atonement here? Right, okay. How did I become interested in the topic of Christ and the Passover specifically? I believe it was through a sermon given by a pastor who used to preach in Texas on the campus of Texas A&M, but who's now a pastor at Passion City Church in Washington, D.C. His name's Ben Stewart. And I believe that I had heard a sermon he was giving in which he compared Old Testament tradition or maybe ancient tradition surrounding some of the elements of the Passover, specifically the bread, with how Jesus spoke words that more or less broke with the tradition and reframed it. So he briefly made reference to the way in which how the Israelites treated and viewed the unleavened bread in Passover was not the same as the way Jesus treated and viewed the unleavened bread in the Last Supper. They weren't the same. I think in looking at the discrepancy between the Jewish perspective as well as the Christian perspective, you can maybe grasp a few theological truths just by looking at the discrepancy between the two. So I think that sparked my interest in the Passover. Now, given the nature of the assignments that you'd given us in class, I thought, oh, this is a good opportunity to simply explore some of these biblical ideas that I just haven't had the, maybe the space or maybe the motivation to explore before. So I just applied it to the Passover in this sense. I think broadly, though, I'm interested in the, in the atonement for a number of reasons. I think I'm interested in the atonement as a whole because of the centrality in which it has in the Christian faith. I think I would say that the way the atonement as, as a whole interacts with the Passover actually sheds light on some of the theological concepts in the atonement. So I'm interested in the atonement for various reasons, but the fact that I am interested in the atonement actually heightens my interest in the Passover. 
Yes. Now, let's go through the Passover then. Tell us about the Passover meal and its significance in the life of the people of Israel. Okay. So, the Passover meal is a feast instituted in the time or around the time that Moses leads the people out of Egypt in what's called the historical exodus. Now, there are a number of elements to this feast. A lot of these different elements are supposed to signify various aspects of the people's experience in Egypt. So the unleavened bread, for instance, and we'll talk about this in greater depth when we get to the, the Last Supper. The unleavened bread, for instance, was known as the bread of affliction. And you'll, we'll see how that interacts with the atonement and interacts with the church as a whole as we discuss how Jesus took this bread, which is known as the bread of affliction, and identified it with his body, which one day, less than 24 hours after he made this statement, was going to be heavily afflicted in the crucifixion. You know, you can look at the cups. These are other elements in the Passover meal that have theological value and that recall the people's memories to different words that the Lord said to them as they were in Egypt. So there are four cups in the Passover meal. One of them is known as the cup of redemption. Others are known as the cup of sanctification. Another is known as the cup of freedom. Uh, and the last one is known as the cup of blessing. So these four cups correspond to promises that the Lord made to his people in Exodus 6. I think it's Exodus 6, 6 through 8 is where you can find those uh, promises. And as the people drink these cups, I, I suppose the idea is that they recall these promises and celebrate the fact that the Lord had made these promises to them in a very ritualistic and physical way. And in a sense, we could call that worship because they're worshiping God for what he had done for them and through liturgy, which is interestingly something that is more or less passed over in the Christian church today. But it, it was heavily stressed in the Judaistic religion. Yes, and then, so we have the wine. We have the three key elements here that right. you talk about, the wine, the bread, and the lamb. Yes. And all three, Jesus at the Last Supper gives new meaning to these three. Right, two explicitly and then one implicitly. Yeah, all right. So let's take a look. You said uh, the wine, there's four cups of wine. Yes. And as they're going through the Passover celebration, then Jesus gives new meaning to one of the cups of the wine. Yes. Walk us through that a little bit. Yes, okay. So what Jesus does, and most commentators agree, that Jesus makes his comments about the wine within the context of the third cup of the feast. The third cup of the feast, as I mentioned earlier, corresponded to a promise. That was a promise of redemption. God promising to redeem his people, Israel, out of Egypt. And so the third cup of the feast that Jesus uses to make his statement about the blood of the new covenant is known as the cup of redemption. Right? So the promise that God gives in accordance with the cup of redemption is from Exodus 6.6. 6. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, as Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples on the evening of the Last Supper, he makes a different statement. We don't know what exactly he said with regard to the cup of redemption, but we do know that he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's from Luke 22:20. 20. So he, he identifies the wine of the Passover with a new covenant being established. And he also identifies the wine, again, of the Passover with blood that is going to be spilled 
or the establishment of a covenant. Now, that's an idea that we can look back at blood establishing a covenant. We look back at Exodus 24 to the Mosaic covenant that God established with Israel, and we see the precedence of this ritual actually established there. So, reading from Exodus 24, 8, it says, And Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses is using blood to signify the establishment of a covenant. Now we can say this is the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament. Now as we discuss in class, the Mosaic covenant is not a permanent covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a temporary covenant that is superseded by a covenant that Jesus established. Now this does not erase other covenants that the Israelites held to given the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis Genesis 12 Genesis mm-hmm. 12 as well as the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. So these these other covenants do establish some kind of identity of the people of Israel and do establish significance theological significance for the people of Israel and we could also affirm that these covenants are of an eternal nature. However, the Mosaic covenant is a covenant that is ultimately superseded by the covenant that Jesus established here in Luke 22. Now Luke 22, he uses that same ritual of blood being poured out for the establishment of a covenant to signify that a new covenant has come. A new covenant has come in which God has created a covenant community and he's done this through some kind of sacrifice. Now we can look back at the bread that Jesus had said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And we can, in a sense, identify that sacrifice that Jesus had made with himself. So instead of the bread being the bread of affliction, if you remember I mentioned earlier, the bread traditionally for Israel was known as the bread of affliction. And what the Israelites would say, or what the host would say, when it comes to the breaking of bread in the traditional Passover meal is, quote, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers had to eat as they came out of Egypt, end quote. Now, Jesus does not say that, or at least we don't have record of him saying that. He instead says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, just as the old covenant had been established with a blood sacrifice in which the body of a lamb was killed, Jesus identifies his affliction or his body as to be broken for the disciples and ultimately for the covenant community, which ultimately signifies the establishment of a new covenant through Jesus's sacrifice. And it centralizes on Jesus's sacrifice rather than on previous Israelite experience. Right. So this is pretty significant here, what's going on. I hope people understand when the Last Supper was occurring. It was actually on the Passover, and right. they're celebrating this Passover, which is one of the most significant Jewish festivals that they have been celebrating for over a thousand years. And suddenly, here's Jesus on this night, giving new meaning to one of right. the most significant celebrations on the Jewish calendar. So it's pretty significant what's going on here, and how Jesus is giving new meaning to these elements here, these symbols here. Now, there's a third one. The lamb. Right. Tell us about that and how Christ indirectly or implicitly brings new meaning to that one. That is a feature of the Passover meal that is not explicitly identified at the Last Supper. 
you read the synoptic accounts, which is where you get the accounts of the Last Supper, you don't explicitly see any reference that Jesus makes to the Passover lamb. Now we have to ask the question, why is that? If this is the critical feature of the Passover, why is it that Jesus doesn't make any reference to the Passover lamb? And that brings me to another point that I want to bring up, which is there's a hermeneutical, which is just a fancy way of saying there's an interpretational issue at play when we look at the Passover and the New Testament. Our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may donate right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuperak. Oh, 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 oh,